largest crowdsourced, crowdfunded, excuse me, uh, streaming series ever, ever. That's a pretty big deal. Private funding all to produce uh, The Chosen, which is now going to season three. So I'll just say, interview with <clears throat> one of the actors. His name is Brandon Potter. He plays the actor Quintus in The Chosen, if you're as those who are familiar with the series. Quintus is the enemy. He's the protagonist in the series. He is a Roman soldier. He is a, uh, a, a way to describe him, kind of in our understanding, a kind of a martial law mayor uh, of, of the area that he governs. Okay, lots of power in one individual. But he's the enemy and protagonist in the series. And he was being interviewed and asked about the upcoming third uh, season. And without uh, obviously wanting to give a whole lot of details, he, he, this is how he described it. He said, by the way, the first two seasons, it's, 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 it's really encouraging to see. I mean, it's, it's life-giving. You see Jesus interacting with people in a very life-giving human way. There's, 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 there's tears, there's joy, but there, it's, he says, season three, it's about to get a little dark. <laughs> That's how he describes season three. I'm not going to say much more than that. He says, it's, it's about to get dark. But then he says, he adds, he says, but also, at the same time, in the midst of that starting to get a little darker, there becomes an opportunity for the light of hope to shine even brighter. And so this is actually, as I heard him say that, is exactly the thought I had as we enter into Genesis 3. <laughs> because it's about to get dark. We've taken our time the first couple of chapters, and we've tried to magnify and just, just kind of bask in the wonder and the glory and the goodness of what this cosmos, this world, used to be. But we are entering a dark passage, <laughs> a dark season. But perhaps even in that, and for us, even in that darkness that we enter into, we might actually see that the light of true redemptive hope that is found in Jesus Christ, in his work, his life, his death, his resurrection, might shine all the brighter in the midst of that darkness. So perhaps the Holy Spirit could actually do that for us this morning. That's, a, that's my prayer. But first we have to enter into the darkness. <laughs> and chapter 3 opens by illustrating how temptation to do that which is wrong, that which is dehumanizing to ourselves and to others, that which the Bible refers to as sin, Genesis 3 displays how it works, that temptation. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any fruit in the garden? Now already we have questions. How is a serpent talking? <laughs> is the serpent acting on his own? The author doesn't address these questions. And so as 21st century readers of this text, I would urge us to be humble enough to continue to cooperate with the authors we've talked about and assume that the main point, therefore, 
of this passage is not a full-blown scientific modern-day explanation of what's happening. We must think like the original audience as best as we can. And for the original audience, it must have been sufficient and it must have been assumed that something is just not right in this scene. <laughs> something is off. No ancient Israelite thought that anybody just walked through a garden, walked through the wilderness, and started having a conversation with a snake. Something is off. And furthermore, this likely must mean that this snake is not acting on his own. <laughs> he must be the mouthpiece of someone or something evil that is threatening, that is infiltrating the goodness and order of God's creation. And in fact, what later biblical authors will refer to as this ancient serpent, the Satan. But if you and I listen carefully and pay attention, I would make the case that we'll actually hear a series of events in this passage that sound all too familiar to you and me in our daily lives and the inclinations you and I have toward and temptation to do anything that treats others or ourselves as less than the full image-bearing human beings of God that we were created to be. And the first thing we see about how temptation works here in the garden, and I would then therefore make the case that we think about our own experience, how it works with us, is that at its essence, the temptation to do anything that dehumanizes us or others is at its essence an attack on God's good character. You see, ordinarily, temptation doesn't come to us and win by simply enticing us immediately to engage in that dehumanizing activity. It first must demonstrate that whatever law or instruction or command that we would be breaking by engaging in that activity demonstrates that God is just not trustworthy. He is not deserving of your trust to continue to follow him in obedience. The temptation never comes first in your face and makes such a brazen claim. Take this, because God is not trustworthy. That's not how it starts. Rather, the tempter is much more subtle. Notice how he starts. He starts with a question, a simple question. Or is it? Did God really say? Did he really say? Already just the form of the question is impugning on God's motives. In other words, behind the question, God said, what? <laughs> you have to be kidding me. And so it sounds like a simple question at first, after taking a closer look at it, considering it, is actually a veiled, dogmatic, 
accusatory assertion about God's character through sarcasm. But that's not the only tempter's tactic to break away, to chip away at our appreciation and understanding of God's good character. You see, he also blurs the relational aspect of obedience. He does his best to cause Eve to forget the covenant relationship she has with her generous creator. How does he do this? He does this simply by dropping the covenant name for God. You see, if we were to go back, if we were like the original audience and hearing this for the very first time, it would have been an oral communication. And following along, we would have heard for the first two chapters when the author, when whoever was speaking, referring to God, God, God said, God made, God created. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, for the first time, we would be introduced to his covenantal name, Yahweh. In verse 4 of chapter 2, for the first time in our Bibles, it calls him the Lord God. That's his covenant name. The one that he gives to those he makes a commitment to. The one with whom he makes covenant promises with. Yahweh, the Lord God. And from there, from verse 4 of chapter 2 until the second part of verse 1 in chapter 3. We only, he is only called by his covenant name, Yahweh. Until the serpent opens his mouth and says, not did the Lord God, Yahweh, your covenant-keeping God, say. Did God really say? You see, sin gets a foothold when it begins to blur the relational aspect of obedience. We begin to entertain the lie that when God issues a command, he's not acting out of love as our divine covenantal advocate, but rather out of maliciousness as our cosmic adversary. That's the lie you and I begin to believe when we engage in temptation and entertain tempting thoughts. But the Bible is clear over and over that God's laws, Yahweh's laws, are never arbitrary. They're never impersonal. They're never ends in themselves. Do this simply because I said so, as if it's a power play. By the way, that is ultimately what's up for grabs anytime you and I are faced with something in Scripture that challenges the way we think. In that moment, we have to make a decision. Is God really trustworthy here? Is he looking out for my best interest? Even as hard as this seems to me, what I believe, the way I think, the way I'm wired, if it counters what I believe, then I must make a decision in that moment. Will I trust that God is a covenant-keeping relational God? Is that why this rubs me the wrong way. Not simply because he wants to be in power over me and hold me down. And this relational aspect that now the tempter is questioning, 
is why Scripture elsewhere often describes sin in relational terms. Elsewhere in, in Scripture, we hear sin referred to as whoring, as betrayal, as faithlessness, as breach of covenant relationship, as desertion, as adultery. These are all relational descriptions of what happens when you and I decide to do our own thing. And so the true essence of our waywardness at its core is a lure that this, whatever this is, might bring me comfort in some way that God himself is holding out on me. Whether God is trustworthy enough to give me what I need to be a fully satisfied human being comes into question. And therefore, we lose sight of his love for us and exchange it for a belief that he is simply meaning to keep us from true joy. And that's what the tempter's doing here. So how does Eve respond to the scheme by the enemy of our good creator and therefore our enemy as well? Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said... You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Already there is an addition to God's initial command. Because God never said you may not touch it. But this is another way how you and I make God out to be a cosmic killjoy when we add or misconstrue or misinterpret, or misunderstand his words to us. And at this point, the tempter has Eve in his trap. In his trap. She's hooked. And now she's ready for the all-out frontal assault and accusation that is about to come that God is actually a liar. That's where the tempter was going from the very beginning. He didn't start there. It would not have worked. But verses 4 and 5, the serpent says to the woman, You will not surely die. Complete contradiction of exactly what God said. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. My friends, nobody ever wakes up in bed with someone who is not their spouse and wonders, how did I get here? Who are you? (laughs) What are we doing here? It's not how it happens. It starts much more subtly. And our sense and belief that God is actually good gets eaten away at until we ourselves start to question him and begin to even justify our own giving in to sin. Oh, right. Maybe God has been holding out on me. Those people are happy. I deserve to be happy. Maybe I do know better than God how to get there. You know what? I actually deserve this. And it's interesting that, therefore, that the serpent from hell doesn't go after the existence of God. He's not trying to argue for atheism. 
He doesn't even go after the sovereignty of God. He goes after something that were he able to get us to believe it would have far greater consequences than simply non-belief or unbelief. But the belief that God is actually holding out on us. He doesn't seek, the tempter doesn't seek to undermine God's reality. He seeks to undermine his character. And so, my friends, the, the lure of sin can only be overcome and fought against by remembering God's good faithfulness and doing so on a regular basis. <laughs> Reminding ourselves on a daily basis of the goodness and faithfulness of our God. That's why we come here on Sunday mornings. That's why we come regularly. That's why you meet with other brothers and sisters in the faith to be reminded that we serve a, lo a loving, committed, faithful God. But once you and I start to converse with sin, we end up losing. Notice verse 6. When she, when she saw that it was good for food, delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took and ate, she took the fruit and ate, and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, first of all, my question is, Adam, what were you doing? The text says he was with her. We don't know how long he had been there. But we know that he was silent. And instead of stepping in and defending his wife's innocence and fighting off the temper, the tempter, nothing. There's no answers. It's just the author's account of what happened. Because at the end of the day, there is no explanation for why they disbelieved. And there's no explanation why you and I disbelieve. Sin never, ever makes sense. The early theologian Augustine once said that to try to seek a rational explanation for the origin of sin and of evil is like trying to see darkness and hear silence. Anytime you or I decide to live in such a way that veers from God's good and clear instructions for our lives, it is irrational. As much as it seems logical in the moment, it's absurd. Adam gives in, takes the fruit. He jumps into the madness as well. And in verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Their eyes were open, but they didn't actually see better. It actually made their vision worse. You see, it's not that they didn't notice that they were naked before. It's just that now they cannot handle the exposure of being that fully known by another human being. And so they take cover. Walls go up. Sin's entrance 
into God's good cosmos immediately causes relational fracturing and distance. And yet, and yet we all still ultimately long, I would make the case, to be known, fully known, and yet still fully and truly loved. That's what you and I were originally built for. But this side of Genesis 3, we now feel like the only way we can be truly loved is if we are not fully known. Because people are just not safe. And I have way too much baggage now to allow to be revealed. And so our hope now is that we can maintain control over who knows what about who we are. Because our experience has told us that the closer most people get to us, the more likely their reaction will be to cut and run. And so it becomes a vicious relational cycle and mess. And it all started right here in Genesis 3. I told you it was going to get dark today. But the saying goes that it's always darkest right before sunrise. I don't know if that's true, but it sure preaches well. Because now not only are they hiding from each other, they start to hide, or should we say they try to hide from God as well. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, I don't know. Perhaps this, is a, this was a daily running appointment, the couple and God, at the cool of the day. <laughs> Maybe this is just a, a regular time of day that there's a cup of coffee type conversation or a happy hour conversation with their good creator. But not today. When they hear him coming, they run. They hide. And sin has now so fully warped their sense of reality. That's what sin does. It warps our sense of reality. They actually think that they can hide from the same God that made them, that put the stars in place. And as they cover themselves up from each other, they also hide from God. And sin sends a further blow by trying to convince us at that point that isolation from each other and from God is actually the safest place for us. But my friends, that is the place when we have gone astray, when we have blown it, when we have messed up, that's the place where we only suffer further disintegration as human beings if we stay there. But this is tough. <laughs> because when you and I blow it, and we hide from each other and we hide from God, perhaps we're actually hiding from a voice of someone in our past who is standing over us, waiting for us to mess up so that they can wag their finger at us. Maybe we are hiding from and expecting a loud rebuke and anger over what we have just done. And shame moves in. 
takes over. But friends, here's the light. This is not, this is not how your covenant-keeping God, faithful God, responds when you as his child, when I as his beloved stray. And this is a lie that we have to realize must be rebuked in that moment. That somehow God's posture would be different than what we read here in verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man. Notice, first of all, the covenantal attribution of God's name, Yahweh, Lord God, is reinstated by the author. The tempter has discarded the relational nature of God, and the human couple accepted that and acted in a way that abandoned any true sense of that relationship. Turning what they had into an adversarial relationship at that, and yet God's posture towards his children did not and does not change. And the Lord God said to him, where are you? Where are you? My friends, that's a far different question than how could you? But I would make the case that our experience is much more likely to be in those circumstances. How could you? Then where are you? It's a father's gentle seeking out his wayward child and offering an opportunity to come clean and to come back into his father's arms. It's the same impulse and posture as the good shepherd. Jesus tells the parable in the New Testament of the shepherd, the one who owns a hundred sheep, and one goes astray. He's got 99. Is it worth the effort? Good shepherd says, absolutely. And he goes after that one. And God goes after the man and woman here. He doesn't ignore them. He doesn't abandon them. He offers them a chance to come free from their own self-inflicted wounds. And that's how he comes after you and me. You see, the same fuel that helps empower us to resist temptation, that is to be constantly reminding ourselves of the goodness of God's character and his trustworthiness as a lawgiver is the same fuel that will help us come back to preach to ourselves that he is a merciful, gracious, and generously forgiving God. And so at the end of the day, whether we're facing temptation or figuring out how do we come back, it all comes down to a matter of what you and I believe about the character of God. Yesterday I had the opportunity to see Cam pass his ordination exams, my first Wisconsin Presbytery meeting. And actually before I got here to Madison, there, I already knew one pastor in this Presbytery. We had been friends for a while and interact on Facebook and got to have lunch with him, spent a little time talking to him at lunch. And he had brought one of his ruling elders, and he actually brought another young man from his congregation that he had met simply on the streets doing ministry. 
a, a teenager who he first met, they were passing out water bottles in the neighborhood. And a, a kid had just walked up, asked what they were doing. He told him what they were doing, and he just got involved and started handing out water bottles with him. He said, I can do that too. Starts handing water bottles. He says, what are you guys doing? We're at church, whatever, okay. He tells him, hey, listen, ever, ever on a Sunday morning, you want to come and enjoy a good meal? We, we, we provide a really good meal, um, and then we have a worship service. You're welcome to come have a meal. Eventually, the young man started to come and bring to-go boxes and take some of the food, pack it up, and go home. Until one day, he actually came in without to-go boxes. And he sat down and actually had a meal with some of the people in the congregation. And then left. Started doing that. Until one day, not only does he stay for the meal, he stays for the worship service. This young man comes to faith, I don't know how many years ago. And then all of a sudden, he disappeared. He had been coming regularly to church service. He had been converted. He had given his profession of faith. And then he disappeared again. pastor went looking for him. And here's what the young man told him. He said, I figured I had one chance with God. And I blew it. As far as he was concerned, that was it. And the pastor had the glorious opportunity to expand this young man's understanding and perspective of who his God truly was. Not just his initiating character of come to me, I forgive you, but when you go astray, <laughs> I'm coming to look for you. <laughs> I'm coming for you. You mean that much to me. I will not let you go. Even if I have 99 others, I'm coming for you because that's the kind of covenant-keeping God that I am. And when you, remain, when you are faithless, I will remain faithful. moment we will take a meal that you and I need each week to be reminded this is God's proof that he is faithful and that we regularly need to be fed because you and I are not yet done with the influence and the power of sin in our life this meal is given for those who still need fuel who still needs spiritual sustenance to keep us going until the day he returns. Perhaps your very first application of this particular sermon might be <laughs> that your posture towards this meal, maybe prior to this morning, might have been, I'm hesitating, coming, I, I'm going to do it because that's what I'm supposed to do. I don't feel close to God right now. I know I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with some stuff, and I just don't feel like I'm worthy to take that meal. Perhaps your first application might be a shift in your posture, in your faith, to say, no, Jesus, I will come to this meal because I know you're going to meet me and you're going to feed me here. Perhaps that will be your first application. Hopefully there will be more. You have a good covenant-keeping God who is also gracious and merciful. And he asks us, where are you?
Where are you? Because he wants to be with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you cause these truths to be pressed deep down into our hearts? We are constantly tempted, ultimately, to disbelieve your goodness and your kindness to us. Would you further convince us that you do come after us? That you ask, you come after us and you ask us the question, where are you? Because you want to be with us. Help us to believe that for the first time or the thousandth time we pray. For Christ's sake, amen.